0: Round of applause for that. That was a longer chapter than we usually do, but it's all one unit and it's all good. So um, if you don't know me, my name is Kevin. I'm the pastoral assistant of youth here at Trinity. And uh, like Lucas and others were saying, every year we do what's called Youth Sunday, where you've been seeing the students have been serving um, in the service, and uh, it's just awesome to get to be encouraged by them and, and see that. Um, so before I start, uh, like Lucas said, this year, typically whatever I preach in Youth Sunday, like that's the book that I'm preaching through the year in youth, and so I've been preaching through Daniel, and it's pretty unique, right, especially all the apocalyptic literature in the second half. People don't typically read that. Everyone likes to read chapters one to six, like Daniel's in, Daniel in the lion's den, and, you know, the three friends in the fire furnace, but we did the whole thing. So it was fine, at least I think, I'd like to say they would say that, but um, I'm pretty sure, yeah. But one of the things I wanna show you is, one of the ways I got my students engaged is, um, so there's some students who really like to draw. I'm like, hey guys, this is the passage I'm, I'm gonna be teaching next week. Draw a picture from that chapter. And it got the students more engaged, and do we have the pictures up? So that's from chapter one, you know, like with the Daniel diet, the veggies and water. And so there's that again. He's eating meat, unhealthy, veggies, water, healthy. That's from chapter three. The three friends in the fiery furnace. Um, And these are good. Uh, This is from Daniel 7. The first beast, the lion with the two wings, represents Babylon. Um, Our students are drawing this. This is the third beast. Um, represents Greece, Alexander the Great, the leopard with the four heads, the four wings, and then the last one. My kids would say this is a dinosaur, but this is supposed to be the fourth beast, right? With the 10 horns and stuff. So I just wanted to show you this, just to show how like, one way our students were engaged reading through Daniel, and just to show, how, show you how talented they are, you know? Yeah, they're so talented. So if you see them, let them know that. Um, and it was also super helpful, especially in Daniel seven with the four beasts. There's so many, so much imagery, and you can read and be like, "What's going on?" Like this, like helped our students. Like I would show it in the annex on the TV, and they would be like, "Oh, okay," and it helped them teaching through it. So I just want to show you guys that. But um, as I read, we're in Daniel four today, and I would like to begin with a couple of stories, begin and end with a couple of stories that I really enjoyed. They're not from me; they're from uh, commentator Rodney uh, Storts. That I really enjoyed." And he starts uh, with Chuck Colson. So Chuck Colson's testimony tells how he climbed the ladder of power and prestige to become the special counsel to the President of the United States of America. He was filled with pride as he walked in and out of the office of the most powerful man in the world anytime he wanted. The most powerful man was seeking advice from him, and Colson's heart swelled with pride. That was when he became involved in the Watergate scandal of the Nixon Nixon administration. John Dean blew the whistle in 1973 and Colson soon found himself a convicted criminal doing time in a federal penitentiary. Colson had all that he ever wanted. He felt untouchable when in a single moment he lost it all. Pride always comes before the fall and so often that fall happens in a single moment. It happens for Colson, and in our text, it happens for Nebuchadnezzar. God tore down Nebi's pride. Real quick, I like, in youth, Nebuchadnezzar's a long name, five syllables. I interchange it with Nebi, so if you catch me saying Nebi, I mean Nebuchadnezzar. So, um, God tore down Nebi's pride, but not for no reason. if we we read the chapters leading up to chapter 4, and you look at the heart of Nebuchadnezzar when he encounters God and his word telling him that Nebi's kingdom will give way to God's eternal kingdom. And so far, if you read up to this point, there's been no heart change, but we see God graciously pursuing Nebuchadnezzar to the point of Nebi's humiliation. But this humiliation will be the best thing for him because it will lead to his exaltation so my big idea is god humbles those who walk in pride and exalt those who humble themselves god humbles those who walk in pride and exalts those who humble themselves so i'm going to pray for us and then we'll get started heavenly father i thank you for this morning i thank you for uh, this opportunity that we can come and worship you and i pray that you would just prepare our hearts even now and um god, any pride in our lives that you would cut it down, as Lucas said, and that um, we would bring it to the feet of Jesus. Um, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Pray for this time in his name, amen. So here is where I am going with the structure of Daniel 4. It's all up there, yep. Uh, so verses 1 to 3 is Nebuchadnezzar's greeting. Verses 4 to 27 is the dream interpretation and in Daniel's plea. Uh, Number three is verses 28 to 33, Nebuchadnezzar humbled, and then verses 34 to 37, Nebuchadnezzar restored. So a quick overview of the book of Daniel up to this point. Daniel is the author of his own book, and it takes place during the time of Israel's exile in Babylon. Chapter one says that it was God who delivered Israel into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, because generation after generation, Israel would not worship the Lord, their God, alone, but they would continue to run after other gods. And so the Lord humbled Israel of their idolatry and pride. But during this time, God was with Daniel and his three friends, their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel and his friends would be faithful in worshiping their God alone, despite the pressures of Babylonian pagan culture all around them. In their faithfulness, God would rescue them, preserve them, and even exalt them in Babylon. And what is amazing is how God uses Daniel and his three friends, their faithfulness, as the instrument for Nebuchadnezzar to encounter God and his word, and for the influence of God's kingdom to grow in the world. God uses his people for the growth of his kingdom. And so what is interesting is that the perspective of Daniel at this point has been from the viewpoint of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebi is the one to whom God is giving the dreams. Nebi is the one who sees the fourth in the fire. Yet all of this, Nebi's heart is still full of pride. But here we are, we're in chapter four, and he has an entirely new perspective. And this is the one place in all of Daniel and all of the Bible where Nebuchadnezzar himself is writing. It's pretty, pretty awesome. And he is writing to tell us his new perspective of how God has graciously brought him to acknowledge God. So we're going we're gonna to see how he does that. But first, he, he writes his greeting, and that's where we're at, verses 1 to 3. Nebuchadnezzar, greeting. And so he addresses all peoples, nations, and languages with the greeting, peace be multiplied to you. And this is a very different Nebuchadnezzar from the last chapter where he makes a decree to this decree to the same all peoples, nations, and languages. But he says in chapter 3 to worship his image or you get thrown into the fire. Right? So this time he's very different. He's not making any decrees focused on himself, but he's now pointing them to the most high God and what he has done for him. And as he's reflecting on the works of God, it brings him to praise God. And that's what we see in verse 3 he says how great are his signs how mighty his wonders his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation when i read that like it just makes me think when we take our attention off ourselves and truly put it on god and all that he is and all that he has done we come to terms with this reality and it's the reality of the, the running theme of the book of Daniel, what I, call, what I like to call the melodic line, and it is this. It is all kingdoms of this world will fade away, but God's kingdom will stand forever. That, this is the overall theme of the book of Daniel, and this is the hope the exiled people of God hold onto. Every kingdom of this world has come and gone and will come and go. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, North Korea, Russia, the United States, your little kingdom, my little kingdom. These are all sandcastles that crumble in the wake of God's eternal kingdom. And that is good news for the Christian, because this world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar. Of all people came to terms with this the question is how did this happen for him and he tells us in the next section verses 4 to 27 the dream interpretation and daniel's plea so nebuchadnezzar begins his account of him at ease in his palace he is the most powerful king in the world whatever he wanted he got whoever he wanted taken out he got it done for him he was he is at ease He has everything he needs, but then he started having the dreams again. He's losing sleep, it's waking him up at night, he is troubled, and it's bothering him. It's something he doesn't have control over like everything else. But his response, however, is the same as what we see in chapter two. This has already happened to him in chapter two, And he calls in the same magicians, sorcerers, enchanters, to interpret the dream. And they once again, if you were to go back and read, they once again prove their uselessness by their inability to interpret the dream. And it is telling to see how Nebi is going back to the same things for the results that didn't work the first time, right? How often do we do that? How often do we keep going back to the same things that do not work for us and do not get us the answers we need? How many times do we keep going back to the sin in our lives for some self-help idea and not the gospel? All the while knowing that God and his word has never failed us. After the wise men again make themselves out to be of no help, Nebi eventually brings in Daniel, remembering that he has not let him down. He hasn't let him down in chapter two, so he brings him in chapter 4. So Daniel comes in, and Nebuchadnezzar tells him the dream. He begins to describe it in verse 10, saying, Nebi, to Daniel, he says, I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, The birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. This is a great tree to be at. And it is interesting. I won't get into it, but this imagery of a tree and how it grows and how it's a blessing to everyone is similar to the imagery that Jesus gives of what the kingdom of God is like in Matthew 13. If you want to go back and study it, Matthew 13 is a great place to start. But we see in verse 13 a heavenly being come down from heaven, ordering for the tree to be cut down into pieces. And then we see in verse 15 the tree is now described as a person he says let him be wet with the dew of heaven let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the field let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him so this tree is likened to a person and then in verse 17 we read the purpose for why this tree is to be cut down the heavenly being says the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. God is bringing Nebuchadnezzar who has forgotten his dependence on God to see his need of God. Sometimes we need humbling for that, right? So Nebi gives him the dream, and he asks Daniel to interpret the dream, but Daniel's troubled by it. Daniel understands what this means for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebi is going to lose all that he has. And before Daniel tells him the dream, he shows compassion for Nebuchadnezzar. He basically says, I wish this dream be for your enemies and not for you. And when I read that, I just think, how amazing is that? Right? This is Nebuchadnezzar we're talking about here, a wicked king, the same king who ransacked the temple of God, the same king who took Daniel out of his homeland and made him an exile and and indoctrinated him with pagan Babylon culture. This is the same Nebuchadnezzar who threw his three friends into the fire. Daniel could have taken this opportunity to stick it to Nebi, right? He could have said, judgment is coming for you, king, and you're going down. He could have done it, but he doesn't. He shows compassion. And this is a good word for us as Christians. Exiles awaiting our home. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. One of the hardest things he tells us to do. Romans 12 teaches us to never avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Daniel has compassion, but it doesn't stop him from his conviction of faithfully proclaiming the word of God. The word of God he has for Nebuchadnezzar was a word of judgment. And he, with a sober mind of compassion for his hearer, gave the word he was entrusted with. So my question for us as exiles who have the word of God, do we have compassion for others while also conviction for the word of God? When we have both of these things, it brings us with a loving spirit to call others to repentance and plea with them to turn towards the mercy of God. We'll see Daniel do that here in a moment, but he first interprets the dream. So Nebuchadnezzar is the tree that reaches to heaven. So when we think of that, it brings us to mind the Tower of Babel reaching to the heavens, right? Right? and it happens to be in Shinar, same place where Babylon is. Very interesting. In pride, they built the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. In Ezekiel, the king of Assyria is likened to the same thing, a great tree that is cut down because of his pride, just like Nebi. And so he says, verse 24, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules." And then verse 27, Daniel pleads with Nebi to repent so that God might relent. Verse 27, he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So in the execution of judgment, God shows mercy. Daniel knows this is the heart of God for sinners, that they would humble themselves and God would turn and heal them. Jeremiah 18.8, God promises if any nation, just like Babylon, would turn from its evil ways, he will relent of the disaster promised to do to it. And this is the whole framework of the book of Jonah, right? The people of Nineveh repented when they heard the judgment that is to come, and God saw them and relented. This is the heart of God towards sinners who humble themselves before him. It is to show mercy. If there is a verse I want you to remember as you leave today, it's the call to worship text that Lucas gave. James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Daniel pleased with Nebi, essentially, he says, break off your sins while the dream is still a dream and not yet a reality. It wasn't the thing Nebuchadnezzar wanted to hear in the moment, but it was the best thing for him. And so, if you are not a Christian this morning, the greatest thing you can get today is the mercy of God. Daniel's plea to Nebuchadnezzar is my plea for you this morning. Break off your sins and cling to Jesus while the message is still a message and not yet a reality. That is message of judgment. I want your reality to be that of forgiveness. Clinging to Jesus and saved from what is to come. There is forgiveness and salvation in him today. Every second we have living and moving and breathing is a mercy from God to turn to him. So please don't leave without talking to me or someone here about what it means to have forgiveness in Christ. Next next section, Nebuchadnezzar humbled, 28 to 33. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't pay attention to Daniel. A year passes by, and it seems that Nebi has forgotten all about what Daniel has said. He thought to himself, oh, it's never gonna happen to me. It's been a year. He's not gonna do anything this brings to mind romans he is presuming on god's patience rather than god's patience and kindness leading him to repentance so nebi is on the roof of his palace looking at everything and in a moment of pride he says to himself look at what i built this is for my glory and my majesty and it's interesting nebuchadnezzar he redirects the word of god to bolster his own pride right This has happened multiple times. In chapter two, he's told that he is the head of gold in the vision of the image of the four metals. But then we see in the vision, the image collapses as the kingdom of God comes in. But in chapter three, Nebi ignores that. He builds an image made of all gold, simply to say, I'm not just the head of gold, I'm the whole thing. My kingdom is forever, not God's kingdom. And he does it again in chapter four. He has a dream that he's this great tree, only to be cut down until he submits to God's kingdom. He ignores that to go onto his roof, and he gives glory to himself that he built Babylon. And one of the ancient wonders of the world is the hanging gardens in Babylon. He's probably looking at that, thinking of himself as this great tree. Look how great I am. Rather than submitting to God's word and giving him the glory, he takes God's word and twi- to twist it and bolster his own pride. So I want to ask, do you do that with the word of God? Do you place yourself in the Bible and make it all about you? Do you take the teachings of the Bible to justify your own desires rather than letting it humble you and correct you? Nebi did, and in that moment, God speaks down from heaven and pronounces all that was said what was going to happen to him. He's given the mind of an ox. He's driven from men. He, he looks like a bird. He's got long hair and long nails. Don't scratch the chalkboard, that would be horrible. He, he's not looking The dream has become a reality. He lost everything. It only takes a moment for something to crumble our pride and sense of ease. If we're being honest, it could be the phone call from the doctor. It could be your house burning down, losing a relationship. In these moments of humbling, you can either bolster your pride and be bitter and challenge God and say that he's unjust and that your way is better. Or as a Christian, you can humbly rest in him, trusting that he does have good plans for his children and he is using it for your good. Or if you are not a Christian, this. There's a difference. If, you, if you're not a Christian, it is your wake-up call to turn to Him. Turn to Him for the mercy from the judgment that is deserved. Because the reality is, is that God doesn't owe us anything, but he, but he instead gives us so much grace, and He gives us so much patience to turn towards His mercy. Nebuchadnezzar's pride and refusal to give God the honor brought him to eat grass like an ox. So it's interesting, Psalm 106 talks talks about Israel's long history of turning from God. Verse 20 describes when they worshiped the image of the golden calf in Exodus 32, saying they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Same description as Nebuchadnezzar. He is like the one in Romans 1, 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. And Psalm 115 said that those who worship idols become like them. So Nebuchadnezzar, having the mind of an ox, is a picture for us that when we do not live out the image of God in us, being like God, we become like what we worship. Whether it's our own pride or anything else in creation, we, if we don't live out like God, we, be, we live out like beasts. We live out what we worship. Next point, Nebuchadnezzar restored. Verses 34 to 37. This was Nebi's state, mind of an ox, until seven periods passed by. It's unclear what the exact time frame seven periods is. Uh, some say a period is one year, so seven years. Um, some say that it's, it's more directed towards seven representing completion in the Bible, so I take it to mean the appointed time for Nebi was completed. By the end of that time, it says in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar, rather than looking down like a four-legged animal that just looks down all the time, he lifts his eyes up to heaven and his reason was restored to him. Nebuchadnezzar came to an end of himself and looked to God in de- desperation. In doing this, he is coming to terms that God is the sovereign one, not him. He says this, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. He then confesses that all his ways are right. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Do you believe that about God? Do you believe in a God who makes you merely comfortable and does your will? Or do you believe in a God who does everything according to his will? Do you believe in a God who you require an explanation from for everything? Or do you believe in the God whom none can say, What have you done even our demanding of explanation is a proof of our own pride we may not know all the answers but we can say trusting in christ we can say with nebi now i praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble that's the point of this chapter So I began with the story of Chuck Colson going to prison for the Watergate scandal. The good news is that the story didn't end there. Colson looked down on others. He looked down from his high position in pride, like a four-legged animal, he's looking down. He was so humiliated and brought down from his high place that he came to an end of himself. And he lifted up his eyes to the king of heaven. And he gave his heart to Jesus. He still admits that the worst, most humiliating experience in his life was the best thing that ever happened to him. Nebuchadnezzar II would tell you at the gates of heaven, I believe, that those seven periods of time were the most important years of his life and that his humiliation was the best thing that ever happened to him because it brought him to exaltation. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There is a difference. Whoever exalts themselves, living in their pride, bolstering their pride, they will be humbled. This is not a humbling of their heart. In fact, it can make them more bitter, but it's a humiliation of their pride by circumstance. This is, right, Nebi, having the mind of an ox. The other is very different. Those who um, exalt themselves will be humbled, but those, whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. It means whoever comes to an end of themselves and humbles their heart before God, God will exalt them. Nebi lifting up his eyes to heaven and all of his kingdom being restored to him, not for his, and for us, not for our glory, but for God's glory. This is only possible because of what Christ has done. They say, pride comes before the fall that is true but when you come to christ when you bring your humbled heart to him this heart humiliation comes be- is before exaltation it moves to exaltation and we know this because jesus humbled himself not because he was prideful but so that by faith in him we will be forgiven and exalted by god Jesus humbled himself by coming down to earth to be, to be put death on a cross and go down into a tomb so that he would be highly exalted and be given a name that is above every name so that at the feet of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And this is all to the glory of God, the Father, Philippians 2. By faith, we too will follow his footsteps counting it all joy to be humbled for the sake of his name knowing that we will one day be exalted so my question is are you living in pride today like the johnny cash song you can run on for a long time sooner or later god will cut you down but today you can turn to jesus who humbled himself for you you can Trust when you humble yourself at the feet of Jesus, you will be exalted, not for your glory, but for His, which is way better than ours. Quote Thomas Wilcox that I just really love. um, Got it from Jeff Provo. Uh, He's an awesome guy. When you believe and come to Christ, you must leave behind your own righteousness and bring nothing but your sin. Oh, that is hard leave behind your holiness, sanctification, duties, and humblings, and bring nothing but your needs and miseries. Otherwise, Christ is not fit for you, nor you for Christ. Christ will be a complete redeemer and mediator, and you must be an undone sinner, or Christ, will, or Christ and you will never agree. It is the hardest thing to take Christ alone for salvation, that is to acknowledge him as Christ. Join anything to him of your own, and you unchrist him. I'll uh, conclude with another story that I really enjoyed from Rodney Stewart's commentary. As a, uh, yeah, so a young pastor, fresh out of seminary, went to visit a dying man in a Washington, D.C. hospital. The pastor had never met this man before. A violent bone cancer was quickly and painfully eating away the life of the patient, who was not a Christian. The pastor shared the gospel several times, but there was no spiritual response. Nevertheless, a friendship did form between the two. Through a number of visits, the pastor learned that the patient was a remarkable self-made man. He had been raised in Spain. His father was killed by the Franco regime, and because Spain's official church supported Franco, this young man turned his back on God and religion completely He fled his country as a teenager and came to America knowing no English. He worked and studied hard. He eventually went to college and studied psychiatry, using it to confirm his unbelief. Despite his early disadvantages in life, he became wealthy and successful. He became chairman of the psychiatry department of one of the nation's most prestigious hospitals. Then came the cancer. In just a few months, the illness destroyed the accomplishments of a lifetime. It devastated the man's body, once kept in top shape by miles of daily swimming. Even his mind began to deteriorate because of the advances of the disease. Finally, with his spirit broken and his body racked with pain, the man ran out of pride and became tired of his own answers, which were really no answers at all. When the pastor next visited, the despairing psychiatrist confronted him. He said to him, I've treated depression all my life, but I have no answers for what I am going through. If your God really has some answers, please help me with the hell I am experiencing now. Give me some peace if you can. The young pastor said, you've gained everything a man could gain in every avenue of life. You have wealth, respect, intelligence, and achievement. These all have to be put aside before you gain this thing you want. You have succeeded in every sphere of life except the spiritual. And to succeed there, you must not follow any of the rules that you used before. You cannot conquer the spiritual world by your own efforts. You must first admit your helplessness and inability, confessing that you have nothing to stand on. To enter God's kingdom and know his peace, You must not come as a self-sufficient man, but a helpless child. The man stared at him and remained silent. The pastor prayed with him and soon left. A few days later, the cancer had progressed to the extent that the man's leg broke spontaneously as he moved in bed. The doctors decided to operate on him, even though he was in a such weakened condition. The day before his operation, the patient wrote the pastor a letter. It began with the Apostles' Creed, written in Spanish. Then the note continued in English with these words. Jesus, I hate all my sins. I have not served you or worshipped you. Father, I know the only way to come into your kingdom is by the precious blood of Jesus. I know you stand at the door and will answer those who knock. I now want to be your lamb, me with you. The man who wrote those words never regained consciousness after his operation. He learned Nebuchadnezzar's lesson that those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. The sovereign God chose to break him of his pride with a violent cancer. It was the worst thing that ever happened to this man's life, but in reality, it was the best. He is in heaven now, where Jesus is saying, I am with you forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, today that you've given us. And Lord, I just pray for anyone who is living in pride, walking by their pride, that you would break them of their pride graciously. That any humiliating circumstances doesn't lead them to more bitterness or shaking a fist at God, but God, that you would lead them to humble their hearts, to come to you open and empty-handed, at the feet of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death so that he would be exalted, and by faith in him, we too will be exalted, all for the glory of your name. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus. Lord, your kingdom come in his name. Amen.